0: So, imagine with me. Let's say that you just finished reading through the book of Genesis. Perhaps as part of a church reading plan. Fifty chapters full of familiar stories, and quite probably several that you did not recall at all. What in the world is this all about? Hopefully, if you heard Pastor Scott's sermon last week, you've got some idea. But, for anyone who did not hear that message, and in preparing our minds for another exploration into Genesis, let's review. In his sermon titled "The Steadfast Love of God," Pastor Scott brought forth three themes, three repeated, displayed, repeatedly displayed truths that help us to understand both what God is doing during this early period following creation, and what is God dis- God is saying to us in Genesis. First, we see that God mercifully cares for his children. Second, that God graciously blesses his earthly family. And third, that God offers hope and life to those who will choose it. Genesis, in chronicling the course of fallen humanity, is rather a messy book, full of wild stories that stretch our capacity to wrap our minds around Perhaps it won't seem so foreign if you compare it to watching the news for an hour or two. Still, the best way to understand Genesis, and all of Scripture, is again by searching out what God is doing, mercifully caring, graciously blessing, and offering life and hope. Now this morning, we're going to zoom in a little bit and take a look at one particular story from Genesis, the story of Joseph. We pare down from 50 chapters to 14, which in terms of preaching is like going from eating a whole elephant to, well, eating a whole baby elephant. But this is the scope of the narrative. Joseph's story is very dynamic and memorable, and I pray this morning that we can marvel not just at what God did through Joseph in his day, but also at what God has done through Joseph for us. This morning we will look at the story of Joseph as a testimony of God's mercy, God's sovereignty, and God's faithfulness. Let's invite the Spirit of God to work through his word now. God, it is only by your Holy Spirit that this word can bear fruit in our lives. Open our ears to hear whatever message you might have for us, corporately or individually. Illumine our minds to comprehend the details we may never have noticed. To grasp the significance of what we ought to focus on, and to rightly wonder at what is too great for us to understand. Soften our hearts so that your word might take root in us and change us, that we might grow ever more into the people you've called us to be. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. The story of Joseph begins with sibling rivalry taken to the extreme. And it's clear, from the way in which the stories of Genesis are laid out, both in their explicit and their implicit details, that this strife has been passed down. Jacob's 12 sons, of whom Joseph was the 11th, were born of four different mothers, two of whom were sisters, deceitfully borrowed away to Jacob by their father, and who dealt with significant sibling rivalry of their own, and the other two of whom were slaves of the first two. Do we need to go any further to find a cause for division within this family? Well, Genesis goes further. Jacob, the patriarch, shows obvious favoritism toward Joseph, which, if you didn't know as a parent, is both wrong and a good way to ruin your kids for life. Joseph, meanwhile, does nothing to help the situation, First, we read that he brings a report of his brother's bad behavior to his father, which we all know is a surefire way to make your siblings furious. And then he goes and tells everyone of these dreams he's been having, dreams where, in essence, his brothers bow down before him in reverence. Whether Joseph might be naive, self-righteous, or, as Pastor Scott suggested last week, just tone-deaf, is unclear. Certainly, from reading the rest of the story, we see Joseph acting righteously. But regardless, it is plain that in his youth, Joseph's words only made his brothers hate him more. And I wonder who among us here has experienced that level of hatred before. These biblical narratives seem so foreign at face value. These brothers are going to sell Joseph into slavery, but really they're stories of people just like us who are living with the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin and replicating it in their own hearts. All of Genesis has been a spiral of depravity, a succession of evil that even a cataclysmic flood did not halt. After reading of Cain, of Lamech, of Sodom and Gomorrah, of Jacob and Esau, it should be no wonder to us at this point that humanity's sin might swell into violent rage for any number of reasons. The sons of Jacob hate Joseph's favored position, and perhaps even his righteousness, so much so that when the opportunity presents itself, they seize both it and their brother with murderous intent. Joseph is rescued from being murdered by Reuben the eldest, but is sold into slavery by his other brothers who lie and convince their father that Joseph was killed by a wild beast. This terrible occurrence begins a years-long series of very dramatic events for Joseph, in which the ups and the downs seem to amplify each other, but through which one point shines forth. God is with Joseph. From being an unknown and foreign slave in Egypt, Joseph comes to oversee the house of Pharaoh's captain of the guard, Then, he's thrown in prison for a crime he did not commit. Then, God miraculously involves him in the realm of dreams again, this time giving him the interpretation of the dreams of others. Then, he's forgotten and left in prison for two more years. Finally, having never been forgotten by God, Joseph is used to bring forth yet more prophetic understanding, this time with an interpretation that has worldwide implications and which leads to him being exalted to the highest position of authority that Pharaoh could give him without himself giving up the throne of Egypt. From here, God orchestrates simultaneously a universal work through Joseph's wise management of Egypt's food to benefit the world, and a personal reconciliation within Jacob's family, this strife-ridden family, through Joseph's forgiving heart. Joseph's brothers feel the weight of their mistreatment of him, but are shown great mercy and love by their brother, who attributes all that has occurred not to his siblings' misbehavior, but to God's sovereign wisdom and purpose. Joseph's brothers then convinced Jacob, Joseph's father, that Joseph is actually alive, and relayed Joseph's urging that the whole family should move to Egypt. Jacob is reunited with his son. Joseph's family is blessed through him. And Jacob comes to the end of his life blessing his offspring before he passes. The book of Genesis ends with the passing of Jacob and of Joseph, both of whom implore their family to bury them in the land of Canaan, the land that God had promised to Abraham and his descendants. Now, I've skipped over just a couple of details there in those 14 chapters. This story is certainly worth its own sermon series. But I wanted to look at it quickly so that we can spend more time digging into what the story of Joseph says about what God is doing. The story of Joseph, in its most condensed form, might be explained something like this. Evil, trials, exaltation, and preservation. Joseph's brothers commit two callous acts of evil, selling their brother and lying to their father. Joseph endures years of trials, experiencing the ups and downs and uncertainty of this life in rather more dramatic fashion than most. In God's good time, Joseph is exalted. Yes, in Egypt, but also before his brothers, just as the dreams of Joseph's youth said he would be. And finally, Joseph's position allows him to preserve the lives of many during a severe famine, most notably his own family, Evil, trials, exaltation, and preservation. So what is God doing through Joseph? Let's look at three divine accomplishments in Joseph's testimony. First, God is overcoming evil. Up to this point in time, we've already seen God mitigate the flourishing of evil by such fearful acts as flooding the earth, confusing men's languages, and raining down sulfur and fire. And being that Genesis is only the first book of the Bible, we know that God will do much more to enact justice in a sinful and rebellious world. But it's worth noting that the most far-reaching and impactful actions of God in Genesis to deal with sin do not come in the form of punishment, but rather grace and mercy. God chose a man. Abraham to enter into covenant and to bear a hereditary blessing so that through his offspring all nations would be blessed. Jacob, Abraham's grandson, is shown to bear that blessing despite his own sinful actions. And it is clear in this narrative that Joseph does as well. As the generations of Abraham's children progress, we don't see sin in remission. But we do see God's faithfulness advance with each successive act of grace toward an unworthy people. And in Joseph, not only do we see the grace of God embodied mightily to the benefit of the nations, but we see God's mercy poured out richly. In Genesis 50, after they have lived for years in Egypt and seen how Joseph cared for their family, Joseph's brothers are still aware of the depth of their transgression and fear that Joseph's anger might break out against them after Jacob's death. But Joseph's response in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 50 reads, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Rather than bring retribution and death upon the sons of Jacob for their sins, God performs the unexpected act, of simply making their sin of no consequence. I don't mean this in a moral sense, for certainly sin will always be an abominable offense before God, who is holy. But rather, I mean that practically, the sins of Jacob's sons, which at their heart are against God, end up only furthering God's ends. That is what sovereign mercy truly means not simply that we won't be punished for doing wrong, but also that God has power even over our acts of rebellion. Not only will God's final justice be enacted perfectly, but his present purposes will go forth unhindered by our petty attempts to remove him from the throne. And it is a mercy. Our sin, our self-focused decisions, and self-worshipping attitudes are always destructive, are always perverse. Imagine if God were to let us have the full fruits of our wickedness. Humanity would have ended long ago. But in his mercy, we have seen time and again God spare us and those around us the painful consequences of our sin. And we've seen God go further and use pain and suffering in the very center of his plan to redeem us. And know this, whether in his mercy or in his just punishment, God will always glorify himself by remaining perfect in his thoughts and his actions toward us, and by accomplishing what he has ordained, through us or in spite of us. Second, God is proving his power to work in and through the worst of trials. With the concise style of Genesis and our own Hollywood-trained minds searching for the action and the climax of the story, we might too quickly pass over how difficult these trials likely were for Joseph. He very probably grew up hearing about God's covenant with Abraham, And the blessing that was passed down to Abraham's descendants. Now, Joseph is being battered by circumstance. Sold into slavery? Falsely accused and imprisoned? Where is the favor of the Lord? Joseph may have wondered often as he went through these ordeals. But we are told plainly. The Lord was with Joseph. Even as a slave, God blessed Joseph. Even in prison, God blessed Joseph. And whether or not he struggled during the hard times, and whether or not he struggled with the anger of having been mistreated by his brothers, in the end, Joseph was able to trace God's hand back through his life and see a testimony of love and care. What about your life? Do you recognize God's goodness in your life? Can you trace it back. Do you see, even in those times where you felt as if it was all falling apart, that God was there? Maybe you need that awareness right now that God is there. I preached the first chapter of Job at the beginning of the year, and how what makes the difference in the midst of our suffering is what we say about the Lord. Why? Why? Why does that make a difference? Because regardless of what we think or what we experience, God is good. And it is only when we get in line with the truth that we can rightly understand our circumstances and be fully able to act rightly in the midst of them. Certainly, that's not always easy. As we saw in Job, our perspective is is often our greatest enemy. We simply don't see what is truly happening. We can't always know what God is doing. Just as often, our own hearts are the problem. We've decided that our misery is our excuse to pursue our own ends. That is a lie. Perhaps our circumstances aren't our fault. Perhaps the feelings we feel in the midst of them aren't wrong. But when we get to that place of distress, where we don't see a way out, we've come to a place of choosing. Joseph could have chosen to go along into bed with Potiphar's wife to get along. It certainly would have made his life easier. It would have kept him out of jail. Perhaps he would have even enjoyed it. He could have chosen to get even with his brothers for all the hardship they'd caused him. Didn't he have every right? No, he didn't. In response to the seduction of Potiphar's wife, Joseph has one reply. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? In response to the opportunity to repay his brothers evil for evil, Joseph has one reply. Am I in the place of God? When you are at the place of choosing, there is always only ever one choice. Submission to God's lordship or rebellion against it. The decisions will come again and again and again, day after day, in the good and in the bad. God wants to use your life, even the worst of times, to paint a testimony of his goodness and his ability to work in and through you to accomplish righteousness. He certainly did this with Joseph. Will you choose to let him do this with you? Third, God is preserving a people, a promise, and a hope. This is why the story of Joseph is such a fitting capstone for the book of Genesis, because it contains so much that looks forward to what is next. For Israel, reading these words hundreds of years later, what a welling up of joy to see how God not only brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand, but brought them to Egypt with a mighty hand. Even this far back, God had ordained the Exodus and the establishment of his people in Canaan to be as fixed and as certain as only a divine covenant can make them. This larger view of Israel, looking back, also relates to how we, looking back even further from today, see the story of Joseph. From Genesis 37 through 50, we certainly read more about Joseph than anyone else, but this narrative is plainly about something larger. Chapter 37 begins with the statement in verse 2, These are the generations of Jacob. We might read the rest of Genesis under this subheading. This larger view would also help us to explain chapter 38, the story of Judah and Tamar, which seems a rather awkward aside that the author randomly shoehorned into the middle of a very exciting tale. It's not. Judah is the fourth son of Jacob. The eldest, Reuben, forfeited his birthright by sleeping with his father's concubine. Simeon and Levi disqualified themselves through their violent actions. We see this state of affairs plainly at the end of Jacob's life in chapter 49, where he blesses his sons. Judah, in effect, has the birthright. And Tamar's child should have the birthright, being that she was, at first, married to Judah's eldest son. Through a series of, unfortunately, all too human circumstances, she ends up pregnant by Judah himself. Though this story is an uncomfortable one of wickedness and sex, it is not just relevant, but vital. If you open to the end of the book of Ruth, another Old Testament story of God's providential preservation you come across that very meaningful genealogy showing where Boaz, Ruth's husband, comes from and how his line is traced to King David. Where does that genealogy begin? With Perez, the son of Judah and Tamar. What Joseph is a part of here is big, and Joseph knows it. If I had to pick a central verse to these 14 chapters, it would most likely be chapter 45, Verse 5, this is where after recognizing his brothers among the many who come to Egypt to buy food and survive famine, after testing them multiple times, after leaving them terrified and convinced that God is punishing them for selling Joseph into slavery all those years ago, Joseph makes himself known to his brothers and acts graciously toward them. Starting in verse 4, so Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me please, and they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Did you catch that? Not to preserve your lives. Not even to preserve many lives. To preserve life. This very general and powerful statement opens the door to a line of reflection that ought to inspire us with wonder. Yes, Joseph was used to save many lives in that day, including those of his father, his brothers and their wives, and his nieces and nephews. A miraculous event for which God deserves full praise. But how much more did Joseph preserve as a willing agent of God's purposes? God sent Joseph to Egypt knowing there would be a famine, Knowing that Jacob's family, the family of the promise, would be threatened by this family. Knowing that Judah and Tamar would bear a son, who would father a line that would lead to David, and that of the line of David would come Jesus, the one who would fulfill completely the covenant of Abraham, and of Moses, and of David. Jesus is the promise fulfilled, and Joseph is used by God to preserve that promise. You will see this preservation again and again as you continue reading through the Old Testament. You will see this family grow into a nation that shakes the ancient world and whose fall is as great as the heights to which God raises them. Through it all, God is preserving this family so that God might preserve life. Without Christ, there is no life. God told Adam and Eve that if they sinned, by eating the forbidden fruit, you shall surely die. Paul makes a more universal statement. The wages of sin is death. What in this world is not tainted by sin and not destined for death, both in the physical and, much more importantly, in the spiritual, without some sort of intervention? Jesus is that intervention. He is our hope. And through Joseph... That hope was preserved. Remember the one story this morning, church. And remember it as you read through the Old Testament. No matter how obscure the passage, this story leads to Jesus. Jesus is the one who offers you life such as even Joseph could never have dreamed. Jesus is the promise that God's presence and God's blessing is available to you just as it was to Abraham and Jacob and Joseph. And Jesus is your hope amidst all that life has to throw at you, as well as your hope for beyond this life. We go from here with the same duty as Joseph, to honor God. Our life will be a testimony. Will it be of how we surrender to God's will and became swept up in the majesty of His kingdom? And how no preacher need explain the gospel to our family, and our friends, and our neighbors, because not only did they hear it from us, but they saw it lived in us? Or will it be of how we pushed back? How we rebelled? How we reserved for ourselves those parts of our lives that we couldn't bear to give over and let God be the Lord of, because we were too afraid of not being in control? or we were enslaved to our desires, or we didn't understand who it was, whose blessings and whose loves we were rejecting. Let God conquer your heart. It will save your life. Even if you've been a churchgoer for 50 years, you still must choose to serve Christ each day. Each choice is a brick building the edifice of our testimony. May our lives be as beautiful a testimony as Joseph's of how God is using our faith and obedience to accomplish his purpose for his glory. Let's pause for a moment of reflection. Mighty God, Thank you for preserving life. We often fail to see just how constantly your love acts on our behalf. But this morning, we want to give you the credit you are due. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the work you did to redeem us from slavery. Slavery to sin and death. Thank you for calling us out. For calling out to us again and again to come to you and be satisfied to find rest. God, as we go from this place, may an awareness of your love go with us and the leading of your spirit go before us to guide us into the way you would have us to go. Thank you for being faithful to lead. May we be faithful to follow. In Jesus' name, amen.